Good morning. Advent, which is the Latin for arrival or coming, is the season in which we reflect and celebrate the miraculous birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Throughout this season, we light candles on the Advent wreath, with each candle representing a different aspect of the importance of Jesus' birth. Though we look back on the first Advent, we also look forward to the second Advent, when Christ will come again, not as a child, but as the conquering King. Today we begin by lighting the candle of joy. The scripture tells us that John the Baptist leapt for joy in his mother's womb when Mary visited. He was overjoyed knowing the Redeemer of the world was here. There was joy knowing there would be victory of sin and death once and for all. We likewise can rejoice in the gospel. We can rejoice knowing that in Christ there is no fear or condemnation, but we are made new in him. As Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Let us rejoice the person and saving work of Jesus Christ this morning. Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Psalms. This is from Psalm 5. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. A New Testament reading, Luke one forty six to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are ever grateful for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that this morning your joy would overcome us as we worship and we glorify you. We pray that even in times of hardship, we would look to the manger, then to the cross, and then to the empty grave, and and be overjoyed at the love that you have lavished upon us. May our souls magnify you this morning, and may, may that bring us much great joy. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. So we begin our Advent series this morning called the Canticles of Christmas. Canticle comes from the Latin canticum, meaning hymn or song. We've said this for several weeks, been announcing this series. There are four of them that we will look at before we get to Christmas Eve. They're all in the Gospel according to Luke chapters 1 and 2. The first one, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have Bibles, there are some in the back. I will have the words up on the screen, but we'd like to make sure everyone does have a Bible to read 
God's holy word. So Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. The first song is the Song of Mary. Song of Mary, called the Magnificat. Okay, it's the hymn of the Song of Mary. The word Magnificat comes from the Latin word magnifies. If you look down in your Bibles, uh, Mary begins her song by singing, My soul magnifies, magnify, magnificat in the Latin. That's the first song. We'll look at that today. The second song is the song of Zechariah. Zechariah is John the Baptist's dad, and, and it's called the Benedictus. If you look at your Bibles in chapter 1, verse 68, the song that he sings begins with the word, Blessed be, Latin Benedictus, the Lord God of Israel. That'll be next week. The third week, the third canticle, is the canticle of the angels. Chapter 2, verse um, 28, where the angels sing out, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest. We sing that song for Christmas. And in Latin, gloria in excelsis. And then the fourth one, as we look right before Christmas Eve, chapter 2, verse 28, is the song of Simeon, the godly brother, the elderly man that's in the temple, and, and God tells him that he will see the Messiah. And when he does, and he has Jesus in his hands, chapter 2, verse 28, he starts his song with, now you dismiss. Now, now go, I can go into part. In the Latin, nunc dimittis. I, I can leave now. I have seen the Savior as you promised. All these songs, all these hymns, these praises are filled with Christmas joy and, and, and holy wonder at what God has done, what God is doing, and what God is yet to do in Christ. Everyone, maybe except the Scrooge, loves Christmas music, right? I mean, the only real issue that we face now with Christmas music that people seem to be very upset about is why they're playing Christmas music before Thanksgiving. I personally don't care when they play it, but some people get very upset about that. <laughs> um, so many, so many Christmas songs are reminders of what the real Christmas is all about and the reason why we sing them, if you think about it. Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come and adore and bended knee. Christ the Lord, the newborn king. Christ by highest heaven adored, the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate. Deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Do you know what all the songs have in common? Of course, Jesus and the gospel. But one of the things the songs, all these songs have in common is, is it's all about the worship of God. God made us, God created us worshipers. worshipers. It's not just that God created us to worship, although that's true, God created us worshipers. It's who we are. It's in our DNA. It's part of the Imago Dei, the image and likeness of God. The issue is not if someone worships. The question that's before us is who and what we worship. We all adore something. We all adore someone. We're all pouring ourselves out in the direction of something, giving our time, our talents, our treasures, our abilities, our monies to something or someone. That's the real issue, because we're worshipers by the Imago Dei. And therefore, I think it's only fitting to start out with what I think is the greatest song of Luke's record, the four of them, the Song of Mary. Because the Song of Mary is all about worship. Turn your Bibles again to Luke 1. 
And I want to see this context or this passage of Scripture that was read under four different headings, okay? That's where we're going to go, so if you're taking notes. The first one is the background and the balance. I just want to have some preliminary remarks. They're, they're rather long, but it's setting up the rest of the passage, which we don't have to deal with again. And then looking at the personal praise, generational praise, and then covenantal praise. So a little bit of background, a little bit of balance, then the personal, generational, and covenantal praise. That's where we're at. Look at the background. The Gospel of Luke opens up with Luke writing to Theophilus. We, we heard him as we were looking through the, uh, excuse me, the book of Acts. Luke wrote Acts and the Gospel according to Luke. And this Theophilus, he says that Luke tells him, look, I put together this Gospel account with eyewitnesses and invest, investigative reporting and so that you would have an orderly account of the truth of the Gospel. And then after that, Luke jumps right into the birth of John the Baptist. We see Zechariah, John's father, in the temple in Jerusalem doing his priestly duties. And the angel Gabriel appears to him at a time when the Bible says that he, Zechariah, and Elizabeth, his wife, are elderly. They're older, you know, beyond age-bearing uh, years for having children. But, that her, her womb was, was barren. And it was during that time that the angel came to him and said, listen, you and your wife will have a child, and his name will be John, which means the Lord is gracious. Zechariah does not believe, or at least steps out in unbelief, and the, Lord, and, and, and the angel says, you will be mute for the time until John is born. Six months later, Gabriel, the same angel, comes to a virgin girl, not in Jerusalem, but north in the town of Nazareth. And she's engaged Mary's engaged to Joseph. He's what the Bible calls it betrothed. He, it's legal engagement. It's, it's more than just an engagement that we would understand. And, they, and, and look at verse 28 of chapter 1 and verse 30. The angel announces that she has been highly favored by God. Verse 28 and verse 30. His name will be Jesus, meaning Savior, Yeshua saves. And he will be the Son of the Most High. Gabriel said that the Holy Spirit will, will overshadow you. She's like, well, how's that? I'm a virgin. The, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. That's, that's Old Testament language, meaning the Shekinah glory. When the Shekinah glory came down in the temple and God's presence filled the, the temple area, she says, uh, the angel said, this, over, this, this, this glory of God will overshadow you and you will give birth to a son. You will conceive a son. And God tells her something, the angel tells her something extraordinary miraculous is going to happen. Mary gets excited and goes about a 70-mile trip to her cousin Elizabeth, or kinswoman. We don't really know if she was a cousin or not, but they were related. The Greek word is kinswoman. There's some special relationship. Most people think she was cousin, but we don't know. But you can imagine Elizabeth, who's pregnant, who has a husband, and we know where, where babies come from, and yet you have this, this virgin Mary with no husband, and she is en route to her cousin's house. She has to be thinking, how am I going to explain this? How am I going to tell her this? And yet Elizabeth is filled with joy, no doubt. But you know, Elizabeth knows. Because when Mary, the younger girl, goes into her home and greets the older woman, which is appropriate, it says, look at verse one, chapter 1, verse 41. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For behold, when the sound of your greetings came to my ear, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Verse 45. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Blessed are you, Mary. You believed what the Lord has spoken to you. Here we see just a glimpse of what John the Baptist would later do. He'd be that signpost. He would be that prophetic voice in the wilderness pointing to and preparing the way for the Messiah. And it all begins right here. His glad and and joyful leap was prophetic of his life's mission. Pointing, moving, heralding Jesus as the King, the Son, the Messiah. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Just as Zechariah was told by God. Your son, John, will be filled at birth by the Holy Spirit. And I want you to feel something here. These two women are exploding in joy. And I'm sure some of it has to do with being pregnant. Right, ladies? You know, two women coming together. They're both pregnant, both having children. And there is joy about that. I'm sure that's part of it. But do you realize that it's been over 400 years since the Old Testament prophet closed, the coming of John the Baptist, Malachi, 400 years elder, last prophet, there is silence in Israel for over 400 years. Now, some people say John the Baptist was the first prophet in the New Testament, and in, in, in a very real sense, that is true. But what we have here is God opening the heart and speaking to and allowing these women, being filled with the Holy Spirit, to speak After 400 years, the wonders and the word of God. Joy. Joy. Now, I I want to talk a little bit about balance because the joy these ladies were expressing was was not only the breaking of silence, but I think the first and the, the very clear in this text is that God's actions, what God was doing, caused the fruit of Mary's womb to be none other than the promised Messiah. God became a man. Look at at Elizabeth's reference in verse um, 42. Verse 43, I'm sorry. She says, the Lord, what what the Lord, you know, the mother of my Lord, clearly pointing to his deity. Look at verse 45. So 43, it says, the mother of my Lord, verse 45, blessed is she who believed what the Lord has spoken. One's referring to Jesus, the mother of the Lord, and the other one's referring to God himself, showing that the very beginning, the Christological truth, that Christ is God in the flesh. Mary is blessed because she's carrying the Son of God. You know, some people, because of this verse, like to call Mary the mother of God. Maybe some of you have heard that term. Mary's the mother of God. And yes, in some sense... That is true, but I I don't usually use that term because I think it's taken out of context. Mary is the mother of Jesus Christ who is God, but not in the sense that Jesus in any way, shape, or form ever derived any of his divine nature or his attributes from Mary. He did not. He did derive his human nature from her. She bore the human being who is God incarnate. Now, I, I want to be honest I I want to be caring, I want to be kind, but I want to be biblical as we talk about Mary. We need to do that. I I grew up in a Catholic home. I'm not here bashing Catholics in any way, shape, or form. There's some Catholics who love Jesus, who believe in Jesus. 
Unfortunately, as a child, I really wasn't one of them, but there are some. We had a giant Bible in my home growing up, about that big. I, I, I think my mom kept it by her bedside just in case somebody came in and intruded. That's what I think. She just hit him with it. He would be out like a light. But in that was the pictures. So I love pictures. I could, you know, it wasn't really about reading it back then. So I'm looking. One of the pictures is Mary on her throne. I don't know if you've ever seen that. And there's baby Jesus with perfect hair and two halos around them. You know, that, that's just not the way it is. When you think of Mary, think of peasant girl, a peasant dress, going, you know, for water in a well. I think a somewhat uneducated with dirty feet and her fan, sandals, you know, dirty roads, probably 13 years old, maybe 14. Middle school age. And Gabriel comes to her and says, you're going to give birth to God incarnate. And what is so cool about the Magnificat is this young, peasant, humble, teenage girl is going to teach us about worship. It's going to teach us about worship. So she is not the one worshipped, but the one who is the worshiper. She is not the one worshipped, but she is one who is worshipped. She's not the one worshiped, she's the worshiper. She's the one that's showing us about the worshiping of the one true God. And unfortunately, throughout the years, she's been getting more and more and more unbalanced approach to who she is to the point where people are calling her the co-redeemer or, or the co-mediator along with Jesus. It's not true. Scripture's clear. Second, 1 Timothy 2. There is one mediator, the word of God says, between us and God. It's the man, her son, Jesus Christ. Mary doesn't connect us to God, Jesus does. That's why we see here in this song, and even in the opening of Acts, when we looked at that a few months back or a year ago, you see Mary worshiping her son as God. Therefore, we don't pray, for that's an act of worship to her. Nowhere does the Bible say that Mary was sinless. Nowhere does it say that she was a perpetual virgin, for that would be a sin. Just ask her husband. She had several children, according to Matthew 12 and 2. You'll get that on the way home. So here's the word of caution. We don't want to make much of Mary, but we don't want to dishonor her either. We want to believe what the scriptures say. Yes, she should be honored. She should be respected. We count her faith and her memory blessed. And a little bit we know about her. We know that she was a godly teenage girl. She's the one that stayed awake in the synagogue. She raised a family of, of people who were devoted to God. She loved the Lord. She was not a perfect woman, but she was a woman of faith. And, and, and in the most amazing moment of her humble life, 13 years old, the angel comes. She was willing to let go of her reputation and what that might have looked like in her community, her comfort and her security, so that she could say, I'm going to serve the Lord. Let me say this to you as well. Mary should not be our object of faith but she is an example of faith. She's not our object, but she's an example of faith. We should seek, like Mary, to have faith by the grace of God, to love God, to trust God, to serve God like she did, to have a, a heart, a humble heart, a devoted heart. Especially in times of today when teenagers are so confused, there's sexual sins running rapidly. Here's Mary saying at that very young age, Lord, I am yours do whatever you want with me, I will obey you. That, that's, that's amazing. And here's this young girl going to speak to us about worship, the Magnificat. 
Now, as we get into this text, I'm going to tell you right now, some of you, if you like to do some study, you have some commentaries. Um, there's a couple of commentaries out there. They're really not worth reading. You can use them maybe to wrap some fish or whatever you want to do with the paper. But um, that will tell you that Mary didn't write this. She's a peasant girl. She's a young girl. It's too poetic. It's too sophisticated. You know, it, it, it's too th- theologically rich. She couldn't have possibly wrote that. They obviously don't understand biblical inspiration. Mary, like the other writers of scriptures, according to 2 Peter, was filled with the Holy Spirit, being carried along by him to give us this wonderful hymn of praise. And let me tell you something else about Mary. She knew her Bible. This song, this hymn, this worship is loaded with Old Testament illusion. She, she speaks about Hannah in 1 Samuel 2, you can read it. There are words in there from David. In fact, every line or counterpart in or allusion has pointing to the Old Testament, even the prophets, even King David. It's loaded with the Word of God. Mary hid God's Word in her heart, and God turned that into worship, into a song. So it really doesn't matter what's in your wallet, right? What's in your wallet? Well, what's in your heart? That's the question. And for Mary, God takes this young girl, fills it with the Spirit, and out comes Scripture. And that's what we see here. The Magnificat is a moving and, and a profound divine and human composition, teaching us about the joy of, of worship and the joy of praise. Chapter 1. Whoop, let me go back one more. John and Elizabeth are not the only ones excited. They're not the only ones rejoicing. Mary lifts up her voice, compelled by this overwhelming joy. Verse 46, and Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She gets it. There is clarity, and divine joy is released. My spirit, my soul. That's Hebrew parallelism. So what that means is that it's not two separate incidences. It's a way of saying my, my very inner being, everything in me, my heart, the seat of my emotions, the, the very inner core of my beings, the immaterial myself is exploding with joy. I'm magnifying the Lord in the inner being. I am rejoicing in the Lord in my inner being. And that word uh, magnify is the word megalon, which we get our word mega. Something small made big. Something, something that is bigger than normal, I should say, and louder than usual. You know, you put that, some of you guys got that extra bass on your radio or on your car. You're like, oh, I'm going to add some bass to that. That, that, that mega bass, the, the mega exaltation, the crescendo of worship. And look what she's rejoicing in. What is she glorifying in? Look what it says. The Lord, God, my Savior. That's what worship is all about. It's actually in the present tense, which means it's a continuing of worship. It's continuing of worship. It's a state of worship. How does one get to the place to, of the state of worship? Christmas time, many of you know, bring a lot of people out to come to church. That's a good thing. Christmas and Easter, and then maybe in the street we'll see them once in a while. But that's a good. I, as far as I'm concerned, they're hearing the message of Jesus. Who knows what God's going to do? Christmas season, Christmas music, Christmas songs brings out that Kind of joyous, bubbly, fun, singing, joyful time in our lives, does it not? But not everybody receives Christmas like that. Some people in Christmas time, it hurts for them. Maybe they're missing a loved one. Maybe a family's under stress. Maybe they're lonely. 
Maybe they're financially struggling and they just can't wait for the Christmas season to be over. Mary is overjoyed. Unspeakable joy because it is in God, her Savior. Do you realize that if your joy, the foundation of your joy is in anything else, it will be fleeting. It will be fleeting. True worship, true joy becomes a way of life when it is fixed on something that will never, ever change. It will never, ever change. God never changes. Christ never changes. Our salvation never changes. His promise, his covenant, his promises, his, our future never changes. So Mary sings, not about her circumstances, but about her God, her Savior. Notice there is what she's saying. She sees herself as a sinner in need of a Savior. To God, my Savior, she needs a deliverer. She's needing cleansing from sin. She needs cleansing from guilt. She needs to be reconciled between a holy God and a sinful people. She needs communion with God, and she's trusting in God, her Savior. And when God comes to her and says, the son you will carry will be the Savior, she joins the line of the long witness of Old Testament saints who sing about God's salvation throughout the old, all the Old Testament. The redeemed singing with the assurance that God will save his people. What Mary is most self-aware of, what she is most self-conscious of, as she bursts into a song, is that God has provided a Savior. And that joy is not fleeting because it doesn't matter the circumstances you are in, it will never change. But that's not all she's excited about. Look what she says. She not only worships God, her Savior, but also for his grace, his unmerited favor, that he has shown to her. Look at verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, before we look at that, look what it doesn't say. She doesn't say, for he has looked on my wonderful life. He has looked on all my synagogue attendance. He has looked at my moral purity. He's looked at, you know, my, my Bible sword drills. And blessed is he for what he has done, for what I have done. That's not what it says. You know what else this song doesn't say, which I thought was interesting? There's no explicit mention of the son of the most high God. There's no really mention of that. You know why? Because at this moment, at this moment, Mary was busy worshiping the giver of the gift and not the gift itself. God could have looked down and said, I'll pick a wealthy woman. I'll pick one who is highly educated. I will pick one who sits on a throne. I will pick the most educated, a place of, of, of splendor for my son. But he said, no, Mary, I'm going to pick you. Mary knew that she was blessed because of who God was, not because of who she was. I think sometimes we get that backwards. We're too busy worshiping created things, even good things, that become ultimate things, we talk about this, become idol things. Rather than worshiping created things, we ought to worship the creator God, Romans 1, who is blessed forever and ever. Amen. We're all pouring out somewhere. And we wonder why we're lacking joy. The stuff is fleeting. We see this lowly peasant girl from Nazareth. In the eyes, she was nobody. To the world, she was nobody. She knew it, and it was humbling. But isn't that the way God works? 
James tells us that God opposed the proud but gives what? Grace to the humble. Do you know that the prophecy in verse 48, from now on all generations will call me blessed, do you know that that actually happened in the time of Jesus' ministry and while Mary was alive? In Luke chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus is teaching on demonic attacks, and a woman in a crowd, bless her motherly heart, yells out in the voice, make sure she's heard, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And you think Jesus would say, prophecy come true, because what she said wasn't wrong. But he turns to her and he says, no. Rather, blessed, he says, is the one who hears the word of God and does it. He's not contradicting what was said, but because Mary and Elizabeth prophesied it. But what Jesus was doing with this light rebuke was showing this woman that she was missing the point. As blessed as Mary's was to give birth to the Son of God, as blessed as it was to nurse him as a baby, the greater blessing Jesus is pointing out is to hear the word of God, to respond to the gospel in faith and obedience. Isn't that what Mary did? When God tells her, you're going to be the mother of Jesus, she believed what God promised and acted in faith on the word of God. Let it be as you have said. And when all is said and done, the most important relationship Mary had with Jesus was not simply a biological mom, but her relationship as the Savior. My God, my Savior, who died to forgive her of her sin. St. Augustine said this, Mary was more blessed in accepting the faith of Christ than in conceiving the flesh of Christ. And if there's any question about humility and who's the worshiper and who's the worshipped, look at verse 49. For he... If, in fact, if you look at this chapter, you look at this hymn, there's this song, and see all the he's in there, it's all about God. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, you might have the mighty one, the one who's mighty, or the mighty one, NIV, NAS is the mighty one, because it's a title referring to, to God as a warrior who fights for his people, who delivers them from harm. And this, this holy one, this mighty one is exercising his dominion and his power and all that he's done, his authority or sovereignty over the world. And notice what Mary says here too. He says, mighty are you, holy is your name. Not holy is my name. Holy is your name. Now the word holy means to be set apart. Moral perfection and who's worthy of praise. And that's true of God. He is holy. He is other. There is no sin in him. But when they put this together, the mighty holy one, they're talking about the actual righteous, perfect, pure deeds of righteousness and justice. He's singing about the warrior's display of his unique sovereign authority as ruler of the world. She's recognizing, you're God, I'm not. You're holy, I'm not. You're the warrior, I'm not. Psalm 99.3, I had to put this in there. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. 99 verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. That's what Mary's saying. 
And that loving extension of grace to the humble goes beyond just Mary. Look at Mary. Mary gets excited about all generations. She's continuing this worship, this praise, this adoration. It's not only for her and what God has done for her, it's what God has done for others. Verse 50. Generational praise and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Psalm 103.17, she is quoting. She's using anyway. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. For those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to generation to generation. And notice the word mercy. We're going to come back to that at the end. It's, the, it's, it's a Greek word, but the Hebrew counterpart is the word hesed. H-E-S-E-D, hesed. It's covenantal language. It's the covenantal loyal love of God and his grace. And again, what you see is Mary is she's pointing away away from herself and pointing to the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. His mercy. She doesn't want anyone to think that it's just for her. From generation to generation, those who fear him, those who are in reverence of him, those who are in awe, she acknowledges that the Lord has done for her and will continue to do for others. And you know what? That brings joy to the heart of God's people. It's not just for me. God is saving. God is having mercy. God is forgiving sins of others. Verse 51. He has shown strength with his arms. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now God does not have an arm, if you're wondering. It's what they call anthropomorphism. It's a figure of speech. It, it, it attributes human characteristics to God. The scripture uses it all the time. It, God uses it to show us or to teach us something in our own language, in our own vernacular, so that we would understand that, that, that God is reaching his arm. Here his arm, his mighty strength, says scatters the proud, brings thrones down. His mighty arm exalts the humble, fills the hungry, and yet sends the rich away empty. So, The mighty in this world or the proud in this world, the rich in this world, don't have the last say. And family, let me tell you, that's the gospel. Isn't that the way that we see the gospel? The gospel is you're forgiven, you're brought into a right relationship with God by sheer grace and grace alone. No one is being saved by their good deeds. No one is being saved by the proud sense of thinking, I don't need sins forgiven. I'll be my own Lord and Savior. I don't need your help, God. Thank you anyway. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, that everything that man boasts in, his intellect, his understanding, his power, his social status, his influence, his righteousness, his morality, his ethics, his code, every one of them is utterly demolished by this son of God, end quote. The gospel is not that God shows his kindness and favor to the morally upright, okay? And then those sinners, those bad people are scattered, That's not what he's saying. No, the gospel is God's mercy extended to those who are broken, who recognize their brokenness, who recognize their sinfulness. Those are the ones that can come in. It is the proud who will receive justice. That's the gospel. The person that God exalts is the one who is humbled and broken before him. He brings down the mighty and crushes their thrones and he gives grace to the humble. That's the way the gospel operates. That's the way God operates. The humble is shown mercy the proud receive justice. The gospel, what's saying here, what Mary's singing about, 
the gospel turns the entire world upside down. The entire worldly system upside down. God takes the standard of this world in Christ, the greatness and the significance, and spins it right on its head in the gospel. What's interesting too here, the word humble estate, the Greek word means the poor, the people at the bottom, the humble circumstances. What that means is that God brought down the rulers but lifts up the broken, lifts up the poor. He fills them with hung- he fills the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. Mary's saying the gospel comes to the poor, lifts up the poor. Now the poor, uh, we see this throughout the, the New Testament, are the ones that are usually the ones who are responding. So we are not to look at derision toward those who are rich or those who are poor. God looks with mercy upon the poor. And again, the opposite of what the world says. The world says the poor, you're not smart, you, you know, you're not very intelligent, you don't have a giant pedigree, you don't come from a good stock and a background. And God says, no, I, I come to the widow, the widow, I come to the poor, I speak to them. And, and it's not about the power, it's not about your pride, it's not about influence or, or connection. We talk about this all the time. Religion says, I work hard, I have a lot, I've done really good, I must be obeying God, therefore I have all this stuff. So therefore, God will bless me because I have obeyed him. That's religion. The gospel comes in and says, no, you are poor and broken like anybody else you see in the street. And the only reason why you may have anything is because of my grace in your life. Salvation, the gospel shatters the world's view. Salvation is a supernatural act of grace. The gospel comes along and says that the most upright, the most decent people are every bit as lost, shattered, broken, prideful, and separated from God as the sexually active, the druggie, and, and, and the, the thief. That's the gospel. It lifts up the poor, pulls down the rich. Now listen carefully. This is what Tim Keller writes. He says, the gospel shows the poor that they're no worse off than anyone else. And the gospel shows the rich that they're no better than anyone else. 1 Timothy chapter 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. If you're rich in this present age, don't be proud. Nor don't set your hearts or, or your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. The gospel comes over and over in the gospel of Luke. Luke makes it clear through his gospel. You want to read through the whole gospel. Chapter 14, Jesus says, he exalts uh, 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 the humble and he crushes those who exalt themselves. Luke 16, the rich man goes to hell while the poor man is carried away to God's people. Luke 18, the prayer of the righteous Pharisee is denied, but the sinful tax collector goes home justified. And then at the end of the gospel according to Luke, the greatest reversal, the greatest place where the world is flipped upside down, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus himself, who left heaven's glories, riches upon riches, comes humbly down as a man, Poor has no place to lay, lay his head and it is crucified on our behalf. And then God, what does God do? The Bible says that God raised him triumphantly over death and he was what? Highly exalted. And they bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. Mary saying the same thing has happened. 
God has come with his grace. If you meet it with humility, you will have mercy. It extends to those who fear him, revere him. He has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He scattered those who are proud in the innermost thoughts. Does that mean, Pastor Lou, are you saying that the rich cannot enter the kingdom? That God only comes and saves the poor? No, that's not what I'm saying. But we know from scripture and we know from experience that it's very difficult, very difficult for the rich who have a lot in this world to respond to the connection. If you don't believe me, Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful like Mary that we worship our God and not the gifts, the treasures, and the things that God gives us. And if God has bestowed upon us riches and blessings, praise God for that. The Bible says that we are to be generous and rich in good deeds. Mary is saying that God will respond to the humble of heart, to the brokenness, to those who know and recognize that they need gospel grace and mercy. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourself, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that in a proper time he may exalt you. Our final point, covenantal praise. Mary now sings of God's help for his people. He, verse 54, has helped his servant Israel to remembrance and remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary ends this wonderful Magnificat, this, this wonderful song of praise, realizing that the child that she was carrying, whose name would be Jesus, Savior, was a fulfillment of the promise that goes way back. Thousands of years given to Father Abraham. God's actions, his helps here, his mercy is because he committed himself to his people by covenant when he made the covenant promise to Abraham. Look what it says. We see the word hased again. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his hased, in remembrance of his covenantal love. And what Mary's declaring is that God is faithful to his promise and loyal to his people, which is amazing because his people were not loyal to him. Just read Genesis. Every one of the patriarchs have fallen away, have sinned and turned their back on the promise keeper, God. But Mary understood as she read her Bible, she understood that the Old Testament was not just a bunch of stories slapped together with no cohesiveness. Mary understood that the story of the Bible pointed to the Messiah, that, the, that, the, that there was a connection between the promise of Abraham, herself Mary, and to the rest of the generations. That's what she understood. In fact, the promise goes back. Ricky mentioned it today. In Genesis 3.15, God comes to Adam in the garden and says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan. And in the process, his heel will be bruised. We call it the proto-evangelium. It is the first gospel that was preached. And how the scripture teaches us this uninterrupted moments of epics of, of redemption histories unfolding in scripture that God makes his promise to Adam. God made that promise again to Abraham. God made that promise to his descendants. To Abraham, he said, I will bless you. And, and those who dishonor you, I will curse you. And in you, in your seed, in your loin, in your lineage, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's covenantal promise. 
It continued with Abraham. It started with Adam, Abraham, and then all the way through the Old Testament. Isaac, his son, Jacob, Judah, even King David said that the seed will come. He will crush Satan. He will bless the whole world. He will conquer sin. He will conquer death. That's covenantal love. And that assurance of God's promise was, was held tightly by God's covenant people. They had hope that God would keep his promise to Israel. And you know what? That seed is Jesus Christ. He is the Hesed. He is the covenantal promise. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say offsprings, plural, referring to many, but to one. And to your offspring who is Christ. Paul understood. The Bible says in Romans that as Christians and followers of Christ, we are children of Abraham. We are his descendants through faith. Therefore, the covenantal mercy that, that Mary is singing about is remembering his promise to faithful or to Israel and, and also to us, extended to the Gentiles, non-Jews, who believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, this book was written, Luke, if you turn to chapter 1, it was written to Theophilus, who was an aristocrat, a Roman, some Roman authority. Who knows? Maybe he's even the beneficiary of the covenant-keeping God who made a covenant to Abraham and fulfilled it in the person of Jesus Christ. So what is Mary joyfully singing about? Come full circle. There's one story. There's one hero. There's one gospel. It's a story of God saving and redeeming a people for himself through the person, the incarnation, God became a man, and the work, the cross of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. His work and his person saves us from our sins. The gospel's not be good. And God will bless you. The gospel is, admit, like Mary, we're at the bottom. Spiritually broken. Prideful people. And we need God to lift us up. His arm is reaches down. He, he removes thugs. He removes uh, dictators from their thrones. But he comes to the widow. He comes to the homeless. He comes to the oppressed and the weak. He comes to the spiritually impoverished. He takes a humble woman like Mary and exalts her to the state of blessedness. Jesus is the mighty hand. Jesus is the warrior king. He is the covenant promise. One night, the Passover, Jesus takes bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples. He said, take this. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ is the redeeming king, forgiving sins, adopting us through humility and faith and grace to be his children. He is the coming, uh, he is the warrior who came to defeat sin, death, and hell. He takes away sins, he wipes away tears, he guarantees a kingdom that he alone will reign and rule over the earth, over the world. The hungry will have good things, the blind will see, the lame will walk. His kingdom of righteousness will reign. Jesus is the reason we sing with joyful worship continually. Do you know him? Have you trusted him? Do you worship him? Are you chasing after things that will never fulfill you? Are you running after things made good, justifiable in your eyes? Or is it King Jesus who came to forgive you of your sins? Maybe you're a Christian here today even and you need to refocus your acts of worship. 
Maybe you need to refocus. Where's my heart really centered on? What's the inner being? Where am I looking? What am I settled in? What am I worshiping? I need to tear down my the false idols. I need to worship the true king who can give an everlasting joy that circumstances can never change because he will never change. We pray that in your heart, the Spirit of God will bring you to the place of response for his glory, your joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful song of Mary. Thank you, Father, you filled her with your spirit to sing most beautiful words to the praise and glory of who you are and all that you have done. Thank you for Christ, our fulfillment of the promise, pointing back thousands of years. You are faithful, God, to your promises. Father, thank you for this first Advent as we celebrate the coming of Christ. But thank you that we can look forward to his return. Knowing that he lived a perfect life, he died an atoning death. They buried him, death could not hold him. He rose over sin and death. He's ascended to you. He's returning back, coming king, restoring the earth. And everything that is broken will be made right. Father, by your spirit, help us to respond, each and every one of us, to the worship of Jesus as we sing in his name.